0: Welcome to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Sean Strayer, and together with my co-host, Ryan Beck, we aim to deliver the best content in health, longevity, medical education, and scientific career development. In this episode, we're going to be talking about everything related to nutrition labels, including how they're derived, how to read them, and most importantly,
1: how you might be getting screwed over by them. Hello, and welcome back to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Ryan Beck. And before we dive in, I just want to let you guys know that we're not nutritionists or dieticians by trade, but this is an important topic because there's current models saying that 50%, half of all Americans are going to be obese by the year 2030. That's eight short years away, and that's going to be an issue. And so when we're talking about this, you have to remember that the number one killer right now is cardiovascular disease. And this is stemming from... Our nutrition and so the way to really dive into this we have to look at the nutrition labels and we have to fix the problem from the source on top of this we're gonna have increased cost of the healthcare systems we have issues with chronic diseases and in this episode we're gonna go over a number of things including the guidelines things like what a calorie is the different macromolecules including fats carbs and proteins And some other additional information as well. So, Sean, can you kick it off for us today?
0: Yeah. So, let's talk about where food labels come from to begin with. So, who regulates them? So, in the United States, at least, it's the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And it actually, they came about in the 1990s. So, prior to that, all nutrition labeling, it was completely voluntary. But the FDA, they were charged with creating these nutrition fact guidelines. And it was supposedly based on scientific evidence, or at least the best they had at that time. And the idea was to give Americans a idea of... Just to see where they are as far as uh, meeting certain nutritional needs. And that's from a macromolecule standpoint and also micronutrient standpoint. And so the original one, it doesn't look too different from the one that we have today. You know, it had total carbohydrates, it had your proteins, your fiber, and, uh, you know, certain vitamins and electrolytes. Very similar to the one we had today. But there are some things like trans fat wasn't on the original one. Another controversy in the beginning total sugar it was a uh, it was an optional category and the additional sugar was the only thing that was required so the problem with that is people were underestimating the amount of sugar they were getting in each serving because they only saw added sugar and not total sugar so you know the one thing that everyone probably already does look at when they're looking at nutrition labels, though, is a calorie. Pretty much, we live in this calorie-centric society. And so where does this calorie come from?
1: What is a calorie, Ryan? Right. So that's the biggest thing on the label. It's the big and bold letters. It'll Everyone's looking directly at the calorie. Everyone's only concerned about the amount of calories inside of their food. And I'm trying to get you guys away from that. Um, But before I get into that, let me back it up. So A calorie is really just a unit of energy, and I'm going to describe it for you, but just throw this out the window, really. Um, It's the energy input needed to raise a single gram of water one degree Celsius, or it's also 4.184 joules. And none of that really makes sense to you guys. How many
0: Fahrenheit is that? (laughs)
1: Exactly. None of that that matters. And so this is calories, and so when we look at food labels, it's really the kilocalories as well.
0: So, I mean, anytime you look at a food label, you see this. everything is defined and based on a 2,000-calorie-a-day diet, and I know that can conf- that confused me. I know that confuses a lot of people. It's like, is that a good example? Like, should I be having 2,000? Th- where does this 2,000-calorie idea come from?
1: Uh, that was back in 1990 with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. They put out this Nutrition and Labeling Act that is supposed to act as this general guidance for the public, but... A big problem with this is that no one got educated on how to read these or how to use them in their day-to-day lives. And if you take this 2,000 calorie a day diet, and like just for example, me, myself, I'm a six foot three, 235 pound male. If I ate 2,000 calories a day, I'd waste away within a month. I'd be 185 pounds and frail. And then also if you put these like young adults, children, or even some small women on a 2,000 calorie a day diet, and where it's inappropriate they're just going to have an excess amount of energy and just have that stored as fat. And so this is going to lead to subsequent weight gain and then issues with hypertension and insulin resistance as well.
0: Well, and I think there's this whole argument in the in the, you know, public health domain about calories versus macromolecules and for some reason it's just this really antagonistic debate. I mean, obviously it's a, I mean, anybody with a rational mind can realize that it's a combination of both. I mean, if you feed somebody 4,500 calories a day of purely protein and fat and you restrict carbohydrates, that's pretty much a ketogenic diet, right? But if you give someone 4,500 calories a day, especially if they're not active, obviously they're going to gain fat. And on the other hand, if we just, if we gave somebody pretty much all of their calories in the form of refined carbs and sugar, but we cut it down to like 2,000 calories a day, obviously it's going to set them up for things like liver fat, insulin resistance, and all these other metabolic derangements. And, you know, the whole a calorie is a calorie thing, it it bothers me because even when we eat an almond, if you look at an almond and it says 60 calories – how many of that is actually being metabolized versus digested by our gut bacteria and other things? And it's important, you mentioned that calorie needs are different for every person, right? Like, if, uh, how can, how do you think somebody can determine their caloric intake? Or do you think that's not as important as determining other things like macromolecule?
1: I'd rather them focus on. For me personally, I would tell them to focus on protein first and then build everything else around it. Um, And protein is a solid number rather than a percent of your daily allowance for your caloric intake, right? And so building this around and having this muscle-centered ideology of – or protein-centered ideology, excuse me. Because if you take care of your protein, you're going to take care of your muscles. And if you take care of your muscles, at the end of the day, you're going to be really taking care of your body. Right,
0: and it kind of comes back to this idea of, do people really care about weight or they care about the amount of subcutaneous fat? I mean, if you asked anybody, hey, do you want to gain 25 pounds of pure muscle, how many people do you think would say yes? Every single one of them. Right, but at the same time... If you, you know, said, hey, do you want to give 25 pounds of fat and maybe a little muscle? Nobody's going to say yes to that. So I think, you know, it's important to separate these two ideas of weight gain with subcutaneous fat gain. And it's also important to separate that from things like visceral fat and liver fat that's going on inside. But I think from here, we should start going down and breaking down each macromolecule and kind of going into it and just giving you some of our ideas on each. So the first one that you're gonna see under calories is this, this whole fat, okay? So fats, they're one of our primary macromolecules that we consume. And uh, most of the fats that we eat are actually in this thing called triglyceride form. So that means we have three tri, right, fatty acids, which are just these long things of carbons and hydrogens, and they're connected to this thing called a glycerol backbone, which is made of a three carbons. And so where, you know, a lot of people, when you say the words fats, they, they automatically get this negative connotation. Well, where'd that come from? Well, for, so a couple reasons. So once we figured out penicillin and we figured out how to, you know, live over the age of 20 without dying of an infection, we started to focus on other things like the scale, right? And we started to care about, as Americans in particular, how our bodies looked, right? And this was in the early 1900s, and this was around the same time they did a, the uh, what's called the bomb calorimeter studies, and they basically figured out what macromolecules. How many calories they give the person? And so fats they came up as eight calories per gram, whereas something like carbs and proteins, they only have four calories per gram. So, with that in mind, just based on a calorie basis, it made sense that even without all the other things that came up about fat later, people were like, why would I eat more fat if I don't want to gain weight? So The second big problem was this this famous seven-country studies. So this was around the 1950s when the American Heart Association, they were trying to come up with this diet-heart hypothesis. How does what we eat affect our heart? And so there was a famous scientist named Ansel Keys. He published this thing called the Seven-Country Study. And they basically looked at saturated fat intake and the incidence of heart attacks across seven countries. And they found a pretty reproducible, you know, the higher saturated fat they had, the higher incidence of heart attack. Well, the problem with this study is that it wasn't actually a seven-country study. It was a 22-country study. And so that means he left out 15 countries' worth of data because it didn't fit in with his hypothesis. Now, Ryan, I don't remember the first time you learned about the scientific uh, theory, but that doesn't, that doesn't seem like the way to go. But so the, at the same time, at the, nearly, almost at the same time, they did this thing called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. And it was the biggest of its time where they took 9,000 admitted patients and they actually randomized them to either a diet that was high in saturated fat or high in unsaturated fats. And they looked, they tracked them for years, and then they looked at the incidence of heart attacks. And there was not a statistically significant difference between the two groups. So because of that, we, the American Heart Association and then Congress, and then the word got out was that, hey, fats in particular, saturated fats are bad for you. And we need to replace these right away. Well, what do you think? And we ended up paying for it as a country with metabolic syndrome, with heart disease, with higher rates of things like breast cancer, which are related to obesity. So let's talk about, you know, I really just because we follow a low carb diet, I don't want everybody to think that we think that carbs are a bad thing, but let's get into carbs. So Ryan, can you explain what a carb is and how, you know, how we could look at it as far as how it fits into a healthy diet? think we replace it with. We replace it with refined carbs. We replace it with sugar. And we ended up paying for it as a country with metabolic syndrome, with heart disease, with higher rates of things like breast cancer, which are related to obesity. So let's talk about, you know, I really just because we follow a low carb diet, I don't want everybody to think that we think that carbs are a bad thing, but let's get into carbs. So, Ryan, can you explain what a carb is and how you know how we could look at it as far as how it fits into a healthy diet?
1: So, I mean, if you're an Austin Powers fan, you know carbs are the enemy, but um, we use carbohydrates as our main source of energy. Um, we've been doing it for a millennia, and we have the metabolic pathways necessary to use other pathways as well. Other forms of energy in case we have starvation periods but now we don't have we don't encounter these starvation periods and we have con we have this constant food supply we can just go to the grocery store anytime we want or there's always a mcdonald's on every single quarter that is loaded with refined carbohydrates. So what is, real quick,
0: before you go on, what's the difference between like a refined carbohydrate and then a whole carbohydrate or something that has fiber in it? How does that actually play? What does it do to insulin?
1: So the idea is uh, like the processing that's been done to the grain, right? So if you look at like the Harvard plate, my plate plate, in the Harvard website, not the uh, FDA website, uh, it's gonna list out whole grains being the biggest portion of your meals, and so they're not—they don't want you to consume refined carbohydrates that's been stripped of all their other nutrients, their macro and their micronutrients, on top of the fiber as well. And so yeah, and
0: so real quick, so with fiber, so what's the difference if I just eat a you know, three or four slices of white bread. How does that differ from eating a bread that has all of its grains in it and has all the fiber still intact?
1: I mean, I'd tell you to be careful first and foremost, um, not to eat four pieces of bread, especially the wonder white bread. Um, if you're looking at whole grains versus the refined grains, right? Uh, with the whole grains, you're going to have a lot more fiber in it. And so that's going to be able to slow absorption in the gut and then you're going to have a slower release of insulin and a lot of our chronic diseases have to do with the release of insulin, and the chronic release of insulin in our body and that's becoming a major problem.
0: Yeah, it's this whole idea of insulin resistance and that's it's just one of these things that we keep bringing up and you know, there's this debate, you know, does insulin resistance start in the liver from things like fructose consumption or does it start in the skeletal muscle from just overconsumption of all calories, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, in my mind, it's like, okay, whether it comes from either, why don't you optimize your life in a way that would reduce the likelihood that you are getting either of those. So in addition to carbs, we have this whole idea of sugar and added sugar. So Ryan, what are the two predominant ways that we get fructose in our diet?
1: The two most common ones, uh, mainly being high fructose corn syrup. You see this in everything. And you also have sucrose as well. And you have the, when you're looking at the food labels, just remember that the amount of added sugar really does relate to how much processing has been done to the foods. Because if you just take an apple and you compare it to applesauce, you might think both of those things are healthy. But when they take this apple and they process it, and stripping of all its nutrients, and they have to add all this extra sugar to make it taste better for you guys. And this is completely unavoidable.
0: I think that's a really good apple juice or orange juice. That's a perfect example of added sugar versus natural sugar not mattering when they're in such high quantities, right? Because you know, a an added sugar and natural sugar it has the same formula. It's just sucrose. It's a molecule of glucose bound to a molecule of fructose, but You know, when you have, it takes like eight or 10 oranges to get an eight ounce glass of orange juice. Can you imagine sitting down and eating eight oranges? I mean, that sounds like a monotonous task. The reason that oranges are okay with the fructose and the sugar that they have in them is because you're getting them with things like fiber and you're getting it with all these other micronutrients that it's mostly going to be your gut bacteria that's going to feed on it. And I really want to make this important distinction between glucose and fructose. So like Ryan was saying, we have highly preserved metabolic pathways for glucose metabolism. And an important thing about glucose metabolism is we have a regulatory enzyme called phosphofructokinase. And if we are spending too much ATP, which is our energy currency in our body, if we're spending too much ATP, we're going to slow down glucose metabolism. The problem is when we have too much fructose and it gets to the liver and it gets to the kidneys and it gets to these organs that can metabolize it, they lack that enzyme in that pathway, the phosphofructokinase. So it's an unregulated energy expenditure. We're going to go from ATP down to ADP, down to AMP, adenosine monophosphate, and then that's going to turn into uric acid, and it's going to cause problems with blood pressure, and it's going to directly contribute to liver fat. few other things besides alcohol directly contribute to liver fat, and, they, and they've done multiple studies now, UCSF, the Robert Lustig study, where they can reproducibly mark fructose intake with fatty liver. But you know, enough with that uh, as far as added sugar. But one of the other things that I know that they are a lot of labels are starting to add as a category of their own are these sugar alternatives. I mean, I know that, Ryan, you and I, we have a lot of, you know, these sugar alcohols and things like sucralose and a lot of the things that we eat because we're on a ketogenic diet and it doesn't affect our insulin, but what does it affect? What are these f- sugar alternatives,
1: and what are they doing to us? So they actually can cause a mini insulin spike. Uh, they found that out a couple of years ago, and so that's an issue. But it's all about relation to getting the getting you addicted to these foods. Like I was, I was just going through a bunch of my stuff in my pantry the other day. Even my pre workout has sucralose in it. You really can't get away from this stuff, but. I don't want to talk about this too much. Just know that there's a few of them that you guys should look out for on these nutrition labels. There's things like the sucralose, the aspartame. Uh, these things are gonna be causing oxidative stress. They just published a study this year, actually. They just published published a study in France showing that these sugar alternatives are causing increased. Uh, cancer risk, everything from breast to colorectal cancer. Yeah, and it's
0: an intre- it'll be interesting to see as we get more data with these. I mean, me personally, I, like you said, it's in my whey protein. It's in so many of the things that I have that if I'm looking at it from a molecule for molecule basis, if I'm comparing something like sucralose to something like fructose, I know from a physiologic standpoint that despite those risks consumed in small amounts, I feel that sucralose is probably safer for me than fructose at the time, but I'm definitely going to keep my eye out about where the data goes on this. But let's get into the next big macromolecule, which, I mean, we recognize this is probably one of the most important on the list. And, you know, a lot of people, as we're going to get into, they usually shoot on the lower side. So talk to me about protein, Ryan. What are they and how do we
1: get our daily intake so proteins are kind of complex and i mentioned this earlier um, i have a protein centered ideology when it comes to nutrition and when whenever you hear the word protein i feel like a lot of us at least may you know jump to this picture of just arnold schwarzenegger chugging this chocolate whey protein shake in the gym and getting large but Protein is just another macromolecule um, and it's coming in in right at 4 calories per gram and they're made of these things called amino acids and there's 20 different of them in our body. so we make the majority of our amino acids, but there's a few that we can't create on our own because we lack these enzymes, right? So those we need to get from other sources because we can't just synthetically create them inside of our bodies. And so those are called our essential amino acids. And we need to get those every single day in order to continue on these metabolic processes. And so a little bit about amino acids, they're just long polymer chains and they can fold a few different ways. And when they finally reach their end of their folding, that's when they're called proteins. And proteins are responsible for a number of things in our body, everything from like DNA synthesis to even carrying oxygen in our blood, as well as one of my favorites, uh, building muscle. And so-
0: Not to mention that they make up every enzyme in our body. And if we went a minute without these enzymes, we
1: would cease to exist. There's a lot of questions regarding, like how much protein do I need? You're, You're always gonna hear people talk about this. How much can I consume in a single meal? What's the anabolic window? And so I've done quite a bit of research regarding this topic. So your protein requirements really depend on your weight goals and your lifestyle goals. What do you want to, do you want to have anabolism? Do you want catabolism? What are you really looking to get out of life with your nutrition? So in a single meal, the studies have shown that you can obtain either 25 to 60 grams of protein per meal to maximize muscle growth. And so I was talking to you guys about this whole muscle versus everything else, right? This muscle centric theory is if you keep your muscles healthy, everything else is going to follow suit.
0: Can we talk about really quickly, just a little bit about uh, protein synthesis and how it relates, like what is leucine? You hear a lot about leucine in particular and how does it relate to mTOR?
1: So mTOR itself has a leucine signaling molecule on it. And so mTOR is just another um, major growth hormone on our body. We have a few, um, including insulin. And so if you want to turn on mTOR, you also have to have a large amount of leucine present in the body. And that's why they tell you to consume a certain amount of protein post-workout to activate those pathways. Because if you don't activate it within a certain time, then you're not going to have the mTOR signaling, and you're not going to have the so is growth.
0: that is that anabolic window? Is that a true idea? Is it like the one to two hours that I've always heard?
1: Not, not exactly. So if you take someone that's just brand new to the gym, they are going to have a greater effect. They're going to have a greater response. Excuse me. A couple out. I think it was up to four hours after their training session. But if you have a well-trained individual that's been lifting weights for a period of years, their, their quote-unquote anabolic window is extended out to 24 to 48 hours. That's
0: So that's really interesting. And that's, that's going to surprise a lot of people because when I first started lifting, I mean, I was like rushing home to get my protein shaken, thinking this, I have to meet my protein requirement within this optimal window. But this 24-hour idea really opens up a lot of things. I mean, if somebody's fasting, if they do a morning workout fast, and they can't eat for another six hours, it's nice to know that they're still getting an anabolic response from the protein that they're eating. Right. As long as you hit those
1: numbers at the end of the day, that's that's what really does matter.
0: And so you said numbers, and that so is that going to be as far as total grams, or is that going to be a percentage of calories? Because the food
1: labels, it labels it as a percentage of calories. Yeah, so and that's based on this 2,000 calorie a day diet too. And that's going to limit how you think about protein. So I don't think of it as a percentage. It's this absolute number. And so you have a few different calculations you can do. First, you need to take your weight. I'm presuming you think in pounds like I do. You would divide it by 2.2 to get the amount of kilograms that you weigh. And if you're looking to really just maintain it's going to be at 0.8 grams per kilogram. So if you have a 100 kilogram individual, they're going to be around 80 grams of protein per day. And then conversely, if you want muscle building, you're going to look at double that, right? So 1.6 grams per kilogram, and that'd be 160 grams of protein per day. And this is really hard to achieve. And so that's why people supplement with the whey protein because it's hard to get 160 grams or more based on your weight in a single day, right? And this is in little chunks, remember, right? Because I was saying before it's 25 to 60 grams per meal. So even if I have 50 grams of protein per meal, but if you think about like, think about breakfast, if you have a couple eggs and not for me, but if you have like a slice of toast, that's only about 20 grams of protein. So that you're falling way, way short on your protein requirements. So now you need to have, oh what, Ryan, do I need to have seven eggs? <laughs> no, but you need to supplement the whey protein, right? And so
0: So is there any difference? You talked about whey protein. Is there any as far as is there any absorption difference or actual utilization difference between something like whey protein versus a steak versus like a plant-based protein, if you're on like a vegetarian diet, like plant or soy-based, is there any absorption
1: difference? So when you look at when you're comparing the three that you just mentioned, whey versus meat versus plant. Um, obviously, if you're in, if you're consuming whey protein in a shake form, that's going to be absorbed a bit quicker in the GI system. Um, and then you have to look at really the the profile, the amino acid profiles of these certain categories right and so if you have a cow and we're just eating the steak of the cow that's going to have a very similar amino acid profile to humans and so that's going to have a complete 20 amino acid profile and we're good on that when it comes to solely just plants and this is one of the the attacks against plant-based diets not that I have anything against plant-based diets I'm all for them but the issue with that would be it doesn't have a complete Amino acid profile, and it's lacking in certain areas, and that can lead to problems down the line.
0: Cool. So let's get into some of before we hop into things like minerals and vitamins, let's talk about just quickly some of the diets that people do follow now and what their macromolecule profile is like. So Ryan, can you just kind of run through us what is a Mediterranean diet? I mean, I think we've heard about this for a long time, but what does a Mediterranean diet include? So that's going to be a lot of
1: fish and a lot of nuts and a lot of green vegetables. It's kind of similar to the ketogenic diet in the fact that it's lower carbon higher fat um so and it's way it's way easier to maintain this mediterranean diet and that's why a lot of people like it and
0: they're full of more like polyunsaturated fats like things like olive oil versus things like butter and what about the carbs are they going to be refined carbs in mediterranean diet or more of the whole grain stuff? No,
1: that's the whole, stuff no that's the whole grains obviously and so and then you're we're both obviously very familiar with the ketogenic diet and if you listen to our last One of our last podcasts, we talked quite a bit about the ketogenic diet, but just a quick recap for us, Sean.
0: Yeah, so the ketogenic diet... It's one that's been around since, you know, the early 1900s and the primary use and what it's still used for primarily today is pediatric seizures, particularly pediatric, you know, refractory seizures that are just not getting better with things like medication. But as we talked about in our first podcast, There's all these other applications for the ketogenic diet because it suppresses the hormone insulin. And it's going to combat things like insulin resistance. It's gonna combat things like inflammation. But, you know, it is like out of the list of diets I could think of, it's probably the hardest to maintain long-term. time, long term. And we talk to a lot of nutritionists and dieticians. This is one of their biggest gripes with the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is extremely high in fat, moderate in protein, and just very few carbohydrates at all. And that's very hard for a lot of people to follow. I mean, you and I, we really do our best to stay on it, and we stay on it for the just general health benefits and the brain benefits, but it's a difficult one to maintain. Right, did you pee on a stick this morning? I did, and I think it was a little purple, which that's what you
1: like to see. Mine was a, I think I had 0.5 millimole, millimole this morning. It was pretty bad.
0: But that is another interesting thing about the ketogenic diet, and I think we mentioned this in our first episode. It's the only diet that you actually have a metabolite, a biomarker that we can measure. There's no biomarker to say, hey, am I adhering to a Mediterranean diet? But we can actually see if we're maintaining ketosis through these sticks and these other things. Um One thing that, you know, there's this low-fat diet, and there's different ways to do a low-fat diet. The problem that I have identified with the low-fat diet is pretty much for the last 50, 60 years, we tried to do a low-fat diet in the United States, but the problem is we just replaced it with all these horrible things. People that do have you know, hereditary hypercholesterolemia and they really need to lower their cholesterol or they're a carrier of lipoprotein little a, the low-fat diet's definitely going to be more geared towards them. But in general, there's no reason to stray away from fats Unless you're eating a lot of saturated fats with a lot of refined carbohydrates. Because it's the combination of those two that get you. It's the combination of the high insulin levels plus this uh, the high saturated fats that's going to lead to problems. But one other one, it's this really isn't maybe a diet. It's maybe a lack of diet. It's the intermittent fasting slash time-restricted feeding. And so, Ryan, I know you still do time-restricted feeding. Can you just explain what some of the benefits are that of that are? And then also, how can somebody – we're talking about this protein-centric diet. How can somebody make sure that they meet their protein goals within a shortened time window?
1: That's a great question. Um, once a week, I'll do a 16 to a 20-hour fast. Just And it's almost like a mental thing. Like if I can – I can go a whole day without food just to prove it to myself at the end of the day. Cause you don't need to eat all the time. Like we we've gotten this mindset that we need to have three square meals a day. And that's, I, it kind of blows my mind. Like we just, we're, we're just clocks. We're running like clocks. We have to eat. We have to eat, you know? Um, and it's, there's a multitude of problems. We're chronically exposed to this and that's part of the issue. Um, one of the other main reasons I do is to improve my insulin sensitivity because insulin causes all these other problems. And so on on the, I mean, I always, I always feel like I fall short on my protein intake. I really do. There's never a day where I'm, I'm happy with the amount of protein that I've consumed for that day. And so, I mean, yeah, you can have two protein shakes with 50 grams each and that one meal a day I'm having two chicken breasts and I'm still falling short. And so that's, I mean, if it's one day I'm short on my protein, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I still had suppression of my insulin levels. Yeah, I still feel great. I can still think well on my feet. And that's what really matters at the end of the day.
0: Do you think that the time-restricted feeding, maybe even occasional time-restricted feeding, or an intermittent 24-hour fast, do you think that could help people meet their weight loss goals? Because is it harder for you to meet your caloric intake in that shortened window? Like if you're only eating for six hours a day, are you hitting your, you know, 28, 3000 calorie, uh, surplus? Are you hitting that in that small window?
1: So weight loss is a complicated idea, right? And the issue isn't like a day to day basis. It's a month to month to month basis. We can't, okay. I can tell you, to do something for a week or two, and people can adhere to that diet plan or that activity plan. Tell you to move more and eat less, and people will do it for two weeks, and then they fall off. So, when it comes to weight loss, and once again, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian by trade, but you have to really change their behavior. It's at like
0: a-, a lifestyle change, exactly.
1: And like, how can I, how can I tell, how can I change someone's behavior? That's a more complicated idea. Uh, to get back to sugar, one of our favorite topics here at Function Health, um, it's really activating these dopamine responses in our brain. And so, can you talk about how we're getting everyone addicted, even starting from a really early age?
0: Yeah. So, you always hear people talk about, oh, I'm addicted to sugar, or I, I need a treat after dinner. And, you know, the thing is, it might just seem like a behavioral thing, but there's actually neuro, there's actually neurological pathways that are being activated by this fructose molecule. So on average, it takes 13, median, 13 exposures of savory foods to get an infant to tolerate it. Okay? It takes a one to two exposures of a sweet food for them to get hooked. Okay. And okay. just
1: look at these baby foods. If you take a look at these baby foods, the ingredient listing, there's sugar added to these baby foods.
0: Right, and everything. And it really goes back to this whole evolutionary basis where we have this the reason we don't have those enzymes that I were talking about earlier is because we our body wants to store fructose in the form of fat. If we were going months at a time, basically hibernating without access to food. Well, then it's a great evolutionary trick to store fat when we have a lot of fructose. So if I'm an old human, you know, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, and I get a lot of fruit, I just keep eating fruit day after day, I'm going to gain a lot of fat, and that's going to help me get through these periods of intermittent starvation. So it's an evolutionary technique in order to save ourselves from these periods of starvation, but the problem is we don't have any more periods of starvation for the most part, especially in a, in a developed country. We could just go to the food, we could just go to the store, like you said, and get anything at any time of the day. And so it's really a problem. And so the, the part of the brain that fructose in particular stimulates, this is going to be the nucleus accumbens. And this is the same pathway that's associated with addiction for other hedonistic substances like cocaine like nicotine so it's a molecular and neuropharmacologic basis for this addiction and it's a it is a real thing so but you know, as we're going through uh one of the other things that you see towards the bottom of a food label are the vitamins. So, what is a vitamin and, you know, what what can we look at at a nutrition label when it comes to vitamins?
1: And there's there's a lot to unwrap here. I would do your own I I don't like saying do your own personal research cuz that's what we're here to do for you guys, but there's a lot of things that the body needs to do with these vitamins, you know, like, oh, vitamin K is used as a cofactor for in clotting. And there's all these other things. At the end of the day, if you want to know if you're low on your vitamins, go get tested by a primary care physician. And I'm just going to preempt this with a lot of people are Low on vitamin D. That's, that's what I saw commonly during uh, my practice in the clinic. A lot of people came in, got their vitamin D tested, and they came back low, and they were put on a vitamin D supplement afterwards. But uh, along with vitamins, we also have these minerals as well. And so what are those? So
0: when they talk about minerals in our nutrition label, it's mostly going to be It's basically monovalent and divalent uh, cations, okay? So these are going to be things like our sodium ion, calcium ion, potassium ion, and magnesium ions. And these are going to play, I mean, it's just every single cell in our body uses these Ions to basically make concentration gradients, to allow processes to happen, to take up glucose. I mean, it's just a necessary, we need we need these minerals. And we need them so much that, you know, things like iodine, which is an important mineral, they actually, it's the one food that the government has actually regulated that they add to our table salt. So we actually have iodine in our table salt because before we were getting that, before that was a mandated thing, people weren't hitting their iodine needs, and it, we it was really suffering. You get problems with thyroid and whatnot. And the thing is, when we talk about when we talk about minerals, we're also it's synonymous with electrolytes, basically. And a lot of people are worried about consuming electrolytes, mostly sodium, because they're worried about a blood pressure thing, but. The whole idea is that people that are active, especially athletes, if you're sweating and, you know, if you go into the sauna or you just go on a long run, the point is you're losing a lot of necessary electrolytes and you need to replenish those especially people on a low-carb diet who they're already eating less processed food with less sodium and you're also peeing out a lot of things like sodium potassium, they really need to hit their mineral intake, usually through supplementation. But just other than that, we also have these trace enzymes like selenium, fluoride, copper, and they act as these things called coenzymes. They help a lot of our enzymes function properly. And, you know, strict diets like the ketogenic diet, as much as I love it, it is typically low in certain trace elements like selenium. So it's just important to understand what all these things are and then to make sure you're getting enough. But I think the general idea from a vitamin and a mineral standpoint is if you're eating a diet that consists mostly of whole foods, you're usually getting everything you need. I mean, but that's really
1: going to be the issue though, right? We're going to have the majority of the population, as they're becoming more obese, they're becoming more sedentary as well, and they're eating these processed foods high in sodium, and then they have a subsequent bump in blood pressure leading to increased CVD risk, cardiovascular disease, further pushing the fact that cardiovascular disease is killing people quicker than anything else, right? and more than anything else.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's definitely, I mean, you, you mentioned that, processed food, by nature have a lot of sodium, whether it's to either make it taste better or to help preserve it. These things are just packed with sodium. And the problem is if you have a high insulin state, you're going to hold on to sodium more tightly. And I mean, the crazy thing is when I switch to making all my food by my, like, I cook all my food, I cannot believe how much salt I would have to add to like a piece of chicken, let's say, to match something that's in like a McDouble. I mean, the amount of sodium in processed food is just
1: mind-blowing. So... And right, what are you eating with that McDouble? Like, what are you drinking with that McDouble? You're having a large Coke.
0: Right. Right, driving up your
1: fructose at the same time. That's a great point. Yeah. And
0: so we we have this whole nutrition label, but there's not a single point on there to help you point to how was the food processed. So I feel like this is an important thing to talk about, Ryan. What? How does food processing? Why? Why do? What is processed food, and why do we really try to? Why are we trying to get people away from that over to a whole food diet?
1: Well, like we were just saying earlier, it's. I mean, these this processing. Because we didn't have pro- like just think about it. if we didn't have processing 50 years ago as well as we did today. Right. And so and then we had decreased rates of obesity, hypertension and diabetes. But all of a sudden you have all this food processing and then it's a logarithmic scale where we have an increase in all these things. So, I mean, there's causation or correlation. I'm going to call it both here. <laughs> so. The, I mean, the, a really good general rule is if you want to avoid the processed foods, just walk around the corners of the store. Don't go to the middle. Just stay on the outside. You know, get the fruits and veggies, get your meats, Funny get your is- milk and eggs, and go.
0: Yeah, well, the whole thing we're talking about, we keep talking about nutrition labels, but if you walk, if you shop on the outside of the store and you get fresh produce and you get fresh chicken – There's not a nutrition label on something like tomatoes. There's not a nutrition label on something like chicken. It's because there's whole foods. There's no, they don't need to list these things because they haven't been processed in the way that something like a
1: cookie has. Even just like going off the tomatoes idea, right? If you just, uh, next time you guys go to the store, I want you guys to grab a bottle of ketchup from the shelf. And look at the second ingredient. Right after tomatoes, it's high fructose corn syrup. It's crazy.
0: And so that's actually a good point when we talk about the ingredient listing. So they actually, they have to list ingredients by their mass composition uh, out of total. So if, you know, let's say you're looking at a sports drink or really anything, and let's say the first ingredient water, okay, so by definition, there's, but by mass percent, there's more water than anything else, which makes sense because water is a great solvent, but if your second ingredient on the list is sugar or added sugars or high fructose corn syrup, that means by Let's say you had, you might have had fifty-one percent. This is just a a dramatic example, but it helps illustrate the picture. If I have a soda that has fifty-one percent water, it could have forty-nine percent high fructose corn syrup. The point is, you don't know what that mass composition is by numbers because they're not. They don't have to list it. Yeah, they hide it from you. Right. Exactly. You can't see what the composition is. So that's definitely
1: an important point. So I mean, when you're getting down to what should I really, what should I really pick out when I go to the store, or how can I improve my own nutrition? Uh, that's going to be a lot of questions that are on people's minds. You know, like even I have this question of myself: how can I, how can I improve? And so there's a couple different approaches when you come to this. You know, and like there's always a bias on the on the back end, right? So there's been multiple studies uh, regarding how there's a direct correlation between socioeconomic status and your overall general health.
0: Right. I mean, is it, I mean, real food is way more expensive than processed food. I mean, think how much a pound of chicken costs versus, you know, three burgers from a fast food restaurant.
1: Right. And like, just for example, if you have, if like I'm a, I'm a family man. I have a wife and four kids, which I don't. But <laughs> see, I have a wife and four kids and I work two jobs to make ends meet. I'm most of my money is going to rent and my bills. I can't afford uh, I just went to Sprouts and spent $150 the other day. You know, like I can't afford those splurges on a week to week basis. It's also
0: you can't afford the time it costs to make. I mean, you could throw in something in the microwave. It's done in 2 minutes versus I mean, you know, it takes me on average like 30, 45 minutes maybe to cook a lot of the meals that I eat.
1: And on a day-to-day basis, this doesn't seem like a big deal in your head, you know, like it's, you're just trying to make, you're just trying to live and I get that and it it really does suck, but it's a trade-off, right? Like you're trading in years of your life for the convenience it is to go get a, go to the store and get a burger or go to the fast food restaurant and get a burger. And that's, that's, I wouldn't trade a couple years of my life to eat fast food for a period of any time you know like i life is precious you got to hold on to these things yeah and no there's no like back to what i was saying there's no education you know they they published this act in 1990 and then we're just supposed to know this stuff and that's that's a problem yeah i've never learned this in school right your parents aren't even going to teach you because they don't know
0: right and that's and i mean that's the thing i mean really like when you look at parents i mean parents are directly responsible for everything that goes into their to their children's bodies, as far as food, they have the kids. They don't have any knowledge, and they don't have any control usually about what they're eating. And so, you know, as a parent, and I, I, I guess I don't understand because I'm not a parent, but I know it's a, it's a very tough thing, and it is a really easy most of the nights to just give the kids what they want which is sugar which is these things that taste good which they're raised on and you think that oh they're young enough and it's not going to cause any problems but i mean just look at the studies childhood obesity is on the rise childhood type 2 diabetes is on the rise these are things that we need to we need to instill you know Ryan you definitely talked about how it turns it's about behavior and a lifestyle these are these healthy behaviors and this healthy lifestyle. These are things that we need to instill into our children at a
1: young age. I definitely agree. Like that should really hit home, especially for all you mothers and fathers out there. Like if your kid gets diagnosed with type two diabetes, that's. I don't want to be. I don't want to be rude here, but that's your fault. You know, like I'm a I'm not a victim, but I'm a product of this. You know, I was fed cosmic. I love these little cosmic brownies when I was in elementary school and middle school. But and I didn't know any better. Just it made me happy. It's sugary. It tastes good. But I had subsequent childhood obesity. I was the large I was the fattest kid in fifth grade. And we're see I have there's detrimental effects years later down the line. And so it was up to me to learn this on my own and change the, like, these lifestyle habits. Get away from the addiction issues with sugar. And to I want to really wrap things up. Uh, I want to include this fantastic discussion that I had with a board-certified nutritionist, Kelly Weber. Um, thank you for speaking to me once again. But she brought up some really good points that I want to bring out to you guys here today. Um uh, now, like I mentioned earlier she brought up the whole there's the general approach versus like the individual approach for improving nutrition and that's like her whole that's her whole job as a nutritionist right she sees patients on a daily basis and she also has to deal with the public health side of things how can I improve the general population's health and so that's those ideas that I was going over earlier um, so for as far as the general approach right because we went over some of the Like individual approaches, and I feel like a lot of people know what those individual approaches are, right? Like eat less, move more. That's the general idea. And that's a very it's an oversimplification of it, and I know and I'm sorry, but everyone knows these things, right? But it's all a matter of going out and doing them. But as far as the general approach, right, if the population can't do it, which obviously they can't. There needs to be a higher power other than you taking care of these approaches, and so some of these things have already been done, right? So, with take a look at Mexico, they've already done this, right? So they did a sugar tax on sweetened beverages, and they only raised it up by a single peso, but it they they already showed that they have decreased rates of obesity and new case like new cases of diabetes type two have gone down, and this is projected to go down by eighty six to one hundred thirty six thousand in less than two years that's that's a good number of people and if you want you want you have to compare it to the number of people total in the population to get the real numbers in comparison to us but these things work right and so another another thing that would really help would as far as government oversight you can reduce the amount of salt and foods and this blows my mind i mean i don't watch a lot of tv i really don't have time to watch tv i'm too busy drawing organic chemistry molecules but every time I do, every time I look at a TV and there's a commercial ad on, there's they're just geared towards the pediatric population. And we're just getting these kids – we're telling these kids to go ask their mom and dad to go get the fast food and the sugar-sweetened beverages because they're already addicted. And that needs to stop. Like There needs to be government oversight on advertisements in general because why, why are they doing the advertisements? They wouldn't be doing it if it, if it didn't work. So that's another thing where our pediatric population is targeted, right? So if you have to, if we're having rising rates of childhood obesity and uh, type two diabetes in our pediatric population, most of like even some of their meals are coming from schools. So you have to really target these schools as well. And there's been a number of acts and causes that are gone out and attacked the schools. Like uh, we know Michelle Obama did her little fundraising thing in 2008. And then the Trump administration had another thing where they try to improve school nutrition. But they found that these kids are just throwing away the vegetables at the end of the day. So why are they going to waste money? Because what does it really all boil down to? It's behavior.
0: all behavior. It's behavior, right? I
1: mean, that's a big part of it. What you're eating at <laughs> home. No, it's, it boils down to money. That's oh. all the, That's all the government cares about at the end of the day, right? Because if they're losing money, people are getting fired and these – Things are, going to, things are going to change real quick. As soon as the US is losing money and these big foods losing money, things are going to change real quick. so in order to still maintain the standards, you know what they did? They went to the schools and said, hey, this pizza, pizza, it's a vegetable now. <laughs> the tomato paste, that's our tomatoes, and we have dough, we have cheese, this is a vegetable. And that's how they get away with these things. I love vegetables. <laughs> right. I'll I'll eat eight slices of my vegetables, right? That's and it's really not a laughing matter, but this is a serious thing. It just it brings up the hilarity and now just disgusting that is. Idiocracy is humorous almost. And right. we're at this point where you, what else can you do other than just laugh at the fact that we're calling pizza a vegetable and shoving it in our kids' faces? And I know I would feel I would feel more personal about this if i had kids of my own because i wouldn't want them going to school and just eating pizza all day but that's what they're doing they're getting a cup of noodles and they're getting pizza they're throwing away their vegetables and this is super processed and it has a ton of salt and and then they have the vending machines as well filled with sodas and stuff and i know they've they've done things to try to take away the sugary sweetened beverages from the vending machines but they're still going to go out and get them Yeah. You know what I did in high school? I walked to Circle K and I went and got a 42 ounce thing of Slurpee every day. And this in the (laughs) past, we're a better, I'm a better man now.
0: But But, you know, this whole conversation, this last part that you just brought up, what it really reminds me of, in my head, I just immediately thought of cigarettes. Okay. It took years to establish the causal relationship between cigarettes and lung cancer and cigarettes and heart disease And until then, guess what we had? We had cigarettes being advertised. We had cigarettes being protected by the government. We had cigarettes being distributed to soldiers, to all these people in public places. And so, you know, I think, I truly think that give it a couple more years of data, and we're going to find that things like sugar, things like processed foods, It's going to take the same amount of time before you get these onset of diseases that cigarette smoking causes. I think you're going to see that it causes similar amounts of death, to be honest. I mean, that is a bold statement, but I truly think that we're going to find in a couple years that continuous exposure to sugar and processed foods is as harmful as smoking cigarettes. So what does that mean? It's probably got going to be another 10 to 15 years before we start to regulate what's done in our schools and what's done with advertising.
1: And so uh, that was a great point. I like that tobacco reference. Um, but the issue with sugar is because it's controlled by big food and that big food is funding these studies. A lot of these studies that are published, they're funded by like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, really just you have to look at reducing the availability because that if you have reduced availability you're gonna have reduced consumption and reduced consumption has reduced health harms at the end of the day and if i i wouldn't want half of the united states nation to be obese in eight years that that's a really scary thought like less people to, like they're not going to be fit to fight that's a big issue i know i was i was in the Force
0: security right
1: that's a national security issue if we have 50 percent already ineligible to go and fight for our country, that's gonna be a big problem. We're already being seen as weak right now. We don't want this to get worse. And so there's another couple of ways the government can intervene. Um, I'm not gonna get into these, but that's taxation. As discussed before, we can do restriction. And then we can also do, they can also do banning, but that, that last one's not really such a great idea. Like just look Prohibition at- right
0: Right. yeah, it's hard to
1: work. How long did that last? Yeah, not too long. <laughs> not at all. Like imagine if there's speakeasies for ice cream. Parlors, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to the casino down the street yeah, to get yeah. my ice cream. The, you know no. the password? <laughs> yeah.
0: But you know, you know, I really think that the take-home points from this episode it's going to be you know let's look at actually let's let's look the next time we go shopping let's actually look at nutrition label and let's see what we're putting into our body. I do want to give a quick shout out to my buddy, uh, old high school buddy that actually caught up with in the gym, Stone he actually gave me the inspiration to do this podcast. And, you know, he's a fit dude, and he was saying that, you know, him and his buddy, they went and they got Crumble Cookie, and they were like, oh, let's look at the nutrition facts. And they looked, and it was like, oh, you know, for a cookie, you know, 110 calories, you know, maybe 14 grams of sugar, that's not too bad. Well, the nutrition label said, oh, by the way, that's one serving. And there's like five or six servings per cookie. So, I mean, this is happening every day. And it, it, it's so insidious. And it's really easy to get to lose track of these things if you don't pay attention. So, just keep that in mind. And as keep on learning. And we can't wait to see you next time on the Function Health Podcast. Okay.